in Acts chapter 18, if you want to turn there. Acts 18. The announcement today is that the roster is now out. So if you could just review it, that would be brilliant. It's out where you signed up in the first place. So should be easily found. And thank you to all who serve in various ways, who pray and minister and and who, uh, you know, bring encouragement one to another. It's great to be part of a body and to have uh, the Lord's love uniting us as one. What a blessing. We serve such an awesome God. And it, though God is so awesome, we can forget how great he is and how powerful he is, and we can be discouraged by the opposition we see or how we're feeling. And it's easy to be overwhelmed if we're focused on our limitations or, or a lack of resources or support. And uh, we're looking around and we see obstacles. We can be discouraged by even believers who, who aren't, you know, may, maybe have a bit of a squirrely doctrine or uh, we see indifference and deceit. And so both inside and outside the church, if we're looking around, we can always find discouraging things. But the truth is, if we're looking to the world, if we're looking to government, if we're looking for hope even in other Christians, we're really looking in the wrong place because it's only Jesus that can supply us the hope that we need. He is the one who will sustain us. He is the one that we need to continue seeking it was A.W. Tozer, he made an observation in his book, The Crucified Life, that I'm reading through at the moment. And he said, there's something in common with people intent, Christians who were seeking God. He said, a thirsting and a longing for the cool water drove these men and women. When they found him, they sought him again. What a tragedy it has been in that in our time, we are taught to believe in him and accept him and to seek him no more. Now, I don't know that we would say that we are not taught to seek the Lord, but it's really important that we continue seeking the Lord when he finds us and we've found him to keep seeking him. It's very easy. And if we're not, there's no thirsting, there's no desire for the presence of God or to hear what he has to say. And like Jacob, you know, I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm coming into your presence and I want to hear from you. And I, I the whole day is on hold until you, I can hear your voice. When we have that sort of abandon to the Lord, we will hear him. He says, you will, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. The fruitfulness of your life really depends upon two things, God and you. That's really the main thing. Uh, I cannot seek God for you, and you cannot seek God for me. And if our lives are so full, often something needs to go so we can make room to intentionally seek the Lord so we can draw into his presence. And Romans 8.31, Paul said, If God be for us, who can be against us? And one of the biggest opponents that we face in our walk, you know very well, I know very well, because it's me, it's you. We can oppose ourselves. We can live in a way that's contrary. And when we, contrary to God's word, and when we reap the consequences of that, and when we're looking around and looking for hope where there is no hope, we will be discouraged and disillusioned. Our tendency is to look around rather than seek the Lord. Paul had so many opportunities to quit during his missionary journeys. There were many things that were in opposition to him, but he sought the Lord and God sustained him. So may the Lord 
sustain us and make us fruitful in all seasons as we seek him, as we delight to do his will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word and for giving us examples of saints in scripture and also that we've seen with our own eyes, people who love you and they keep on seeking you. Help us not to neglect that, Lord. Help us to seek your presence, to to, uh, look for you. And thank you that we can see you even in the creation that you've made. We can hear your voice in the word as we read it, as you minister to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would quicken us through your Holy Spirit, that we might hear your word and put it into practice, that we might thirst for you. We might have a hunger for your word and to do your will. For Jesus said his food and drink was to do the will of him who sent him. And Lord, may that be us too, that we would so delight to do your will, that it would be food and drink for us, that we would have uh, food to eat that the world doesn't know of because we're feeding on your word and on your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey here in Acts chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Paul continued this leg from Athens to Corinth of his missionary journey alone. And he met this Jew named Aquila, who had a wife named Priscilla. Pretty cool that their names rhyme with each other. And they had departed from Rome because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews leave. There was some anti-Semitism going on. They, they said, okay, all the Jews are out. And it turned out they were tent makers, and Paul was a tent maker. And they were pleased to let Paul live with them and work together. At the same time, Paul was going to the synagogue every week and reasoning with the Jews and Gentiles there. Whether he was a roommate, whether he's on the tools, whether he's in the synagogue, Paul is um, doing it for the Lord. He is... He's working so that he can serve the Lord. Because remember, he didn't receive uh, a monthly stipend or anything from anyone. He was financing his own journey. And so this was a way where his work, his career, actually worked for him to be able to share the word with others. And he supported himself through manual labor, so no one in these Gentile cities could accuse him of seeking to benefit financially through sharing the gospel. Well, sure, you're sharing the gospel. You can get rich. You know, you get all these people following Jesus. It's a way for you to make money. So they couldn't lay that accusation to him because he was working with his hands. And this shows us that it's good for us not to make the divisions in our lives that can easily happen. Because, hey, at work, you talk shop. At uh, at the gym, you exercise. And at church, you talk with people about God. And we can have these dividing lines in our lives where uh, in my career, that's kind of by itself. And then there's the things I do for God, but that, that God isn't through and throughout everything. That our career should be made to serve God. The way that we live, it ought to be at the, the end result of it is not just to support yourself and to make money, but so you can be enabled to serve God more and to bless others. In the workforce, there's always a chance that 
work is becoming cannibalistic, begins to chew up time that could be spent in profitable ways for the Lord's work. And obedience to God will be costly. It will cost you something. And sometimes it could be measured in dollars. My daddy supplies me with a great example in this area. As a career carpenter, he regularly turned down promotions to go from working on the tools to being a supervisor, to being a labor superintendent. And as age has advanced, I'm sure leaving the tools and being in an, a more su- supervisory job would have its appeal, right? No, Who wants to be on the tools all their life? You're on the tools to get off the tools to tell other people how to do their job and what to do, right? Do you want to be 60-plus working in the sun, digging ditches, you know, but my dad does. And uh, the reason why he would not consider these promotions is because he wouldn't be able to leave the job to on these five or six weeks out of the year when he would fly, he would pay for a, a ticket to fly back east to help people with an organization that rebuilds homes that were destroyed during a flood or a hurricane. So that cost him something. He could have had a more comfortable career, but instead he's like, hey, it's not fair to the company who needs me. If they're going to put me in that role, I can't, I can't be leaving that often. He doesn't have four weeks off. Um, because this is something that I'm doing for the Lord. So that's a price he paid all the time, and he was glad to do so. Paul didn't allow his trade to encroach upon regular fellowship or the opportunity to serve God because he was regularly at the synagogue every week. That was his ministry. He was ministering whether he was with Aquila and Priscilla and his work, and also every Sabbath he was reasoning in the synagogue. So praise the Lord for the jobs he provides, and let's seek to leverage the benefits of them for the kingdom of God. And with this perspective, you can serve God wherever you are, whether you have to travel a lot for work, whether you go to an office, whether you, uh, you know, are just going to the shops and you, you're self-employed. You can honor God there. God can be leading you and guiding you. You can be seeking Him in every aspect of your life. So there's no divisions between, like, I'm led by God when I go to church or when I'm intentionally doing something, but as we're seeking God continually, He will lead us in the right way. We can be fruitful in any role. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul had left Silas and Timothy behind him in Macedonia, and now they catch up with him in Corinth. And with their arrival, it's likely that they brought some financial aid from the believers in Philippi, based upon a few verses, 2 Corinthians 11.9, Philippians 4.15, that he, he says they had offered him financial assistance at a point. And it's likely this was the time when he received it because we see he leaves off making tents and now he's just throwing himself into the work of preaching Christ in the synagogue, reasoning with them in earnest that Jesus is the Christ. They rejected that teaching, and they opposed themselves and blasphemed. And in opposing the gospel, they they opposed their own salvation. Christ would have given them all salvation, all hope, but they opposed that doctrine, and so they hindered themselves from entering in 
to the new life God had for them. And he shook his clothes against them. It was like when he shook the dust off his feet. He's like, those defilements, they're not sticking to me. And I'm washed clean of any blood guilt. And that's a strong thing to say, right? Your blood be upon you. Like, Whoa, you're bringing my blood into this picture now? I mean, it's pretty, pretty uh, aggressive, pretty serious to say. But he's saying, you are wholly responsible for your unbelief. You are under judgment for your blasphemy, for rejecting the gospel, And I've done my part. I am clean. I am without guilt in this area. And it shows that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the blood of people is on the line. These are high stakes. We're talking about eternity here. And so let us be those who are free from the guilt of the blood of others, that we would be holding forth the gospel when the opportunity presents. That we'd seek opportunities for that. Because Jesus shed his blood so that souls could be atoned for and people could be forgiven and their souls saved by his grace. Verse 7, And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Paul departed, he ultimately took up residence with a man named Justice, a man who worshipped God. So he feared God, he was a believer in Jesus Christ. And though Paul, this is interesting, Paul shook off his responsibility to speak to the Jews. However, he moved right next door to the synagogue. They shared a common wall. Though he wasn't, he's like, hey, he wasn't leaving them. He wasn't avoiding them. He moved right next to them. In a sense, he moved closer. But he says, I'm going to bring this message to the Gentiles. He was available to them. The chief ruler of the synagogue subsequently placed his faith in Jesus, this man named Crispus. And it says many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. So though Paul was free of of guilt, for withholding the gospel, they were being saved. They were being born again. And I'm sure it was not easy for Paul to live next door to the synagogue. He was quite the marked man. They knew who he was and they knew where he lived. You guys ever had a troublesome neighbor? Someone that you had to live kind of close to that was troubling. You can't get away from them. Well, they share a wall. He and these... uh, People who are, some believe, but there were some who were very opposed to him being there. When I went to Israel with a witnessing team, it, I was amazed that people, when you handed them a tract, would just stop and they would read the tract. And if it had many pages, they would read them all. And then there was one case, I remember a guy, we handed a tract to him and he's just like, Just, you could tell he was not really pleased with what he was reading. And when he burned the track, then it was really obvious that he was not pleased with that. And, and he stayed there for hours. The rest of the time that our little group was there, and he would go up to an Orthodox Jew and say, these people are missionaries. And he would just tell everyone. He would warn them as they were walking by. Like, don't listen to these people. They're missionaries. And that's not a compliment to be called a missionary. You might as well be called a crusader. They, they're not, so, And I just think, you're next to a synagogue, and there's a whole bunch of people that know where you live, and they're ready to, you know, tag along with you wherever you go, and to try to hinder the things, and trying to intimidate you, trying to make you afraid, trying to make you cease speaking the truth. 
because they don't agree with it and they will not accept it. Verse 9, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. God has this great word for him when he's feeling afraid and he's wondering, why should I even speak? Things are, do not seem to be progressing here. This is a tough crowd. Just a word from the Lord brought such strength and comfort, and it caused him to endure. A year and a half he stayed in that one place, and that was a long time for Paul. We don't read him staying that long very many places, but here he stays a year and a half, tough neighbors, tough crowd, and he continues to speak. If he had walked by sight, he probably would have gone right back to Aquila and Priscilla and said, that's a much better environment for me uh, to work from, to, to serve the Lord and to spread the gospel. And he could have bailed on the whole city because this was really, uh, it was the seedy Las Vegas, uh, the notorious King Cross of the ancient world. It was not a, a, a wholesome place to live, just generally not to mention the things he was dealing with on a personal level, day in and day out. And God says, don't be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. So don't be afraid, for I am with you. There's no substitute for the presence of God. When God says, I'm with you, what a joy, what comfort that brings. When we were kids and we felt threatened, who do we go to? We run to our parents, right? And if they said, don't worry, I'm here. Nothing's going to harm you. You believed them. And if you, if you really thought about it, you say, well, how can my dad or my mom hold up against a hardened criminal with weapons and, you know, a whole gang of people? They wouldn't stand a chance. But you don't even argue like that as a kid because you're with your parent. You're with someone who loves you and you know they're going to protect you. When they say, you're going to be okay. You don't have to be afraid. You're like, ah, oh. you know, they're here. And, and, if God says, I am with you, of whom should we be afraid? If God is for us, who can be against us? But we can forget. The enemy can be great, and we feel weak and unable to do it. And we are weak. We are unable. But see, our God, if he's with us, how can anyone withstand what he is going to do? He's the Almighty. He is God. Praise him that he is with us. He doesn't leave or forsake us. It's we who forget about him. We wander. He's the good shepherd who comes seeking us when we're in a ditch, when we've fallen over and we can't get up, when our wool is so heavy that we, that's a problem that sheep have. Heavy wool, get wet, fall over, can't get up. You know, if a sheep falls over, there's uh, gases that begin to build up and the sheep will die. So the shepherd, knowing this, will go and find the sheep. He will lift them. He'll stand over them, lift them to their feet, massage their legs to get the blood flowing, make sure they can walk again, and then trots off like nothing happened. Let's be those who don't just trot away. Okay, I'm out of this tough spot and just amble away somewhere. Let's stick by the good shepherd who's redeemed us and saved us time and time again. It may not have seemed like it, but God revealed something 
to Paul. He says, I have many people in this city. There were some believers that Paul knew about. There were some believers Paul didn't know about. And there were some believers who hadn't yet believed, but would when they came into contact with the gospel. So this urged Paul on to keep on speaking, to keep trusting the Lord. Hey, God's with me. There's many people in this city that are God's. I may not see them, but God knows everyone. He went there, it says he remained for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. He focused on teaching the word of God to Christians. Because the context is God's people, and then he's teaching the word of God among them. There's nothing better to make a new believer than the teaching from God's word, and there's nothing that will help us to grow as believers without the teaching of the word. This is, this is what we need. No matter how much we know, we still need God to teach us. There's a saying that the teacher has not taught until the student has learned, and we certainly haven't learned everything God intends to teach. So there's still room for growth. Familiarity with the scriptures doesn't mean that we're practicing it. It's like having a torch in your pocket, and and in the dark you're stumbling around, but until you pull it out and you turn it on and you shine it in the direction you want to go, it's not going to avail you anything. And we can know the word, but unless we take the light of God's word and shine it on this difficulty or on the path, this choice that's before us, how can we be benefited from it? And how can we understand it except God help us? We need to seek him and we need his spirit to illuminate the truth to us. If you don't have a hunger for God's word or a thirst for his presence, it indicates that your relationship with the Lord is suffering. When you guys eat a big meal before bed, like maybe a late dinner and it's a pretty sizable one, do you wake up hungry or not hungry? I wake up hungrier. Okay, big meal. I wake up in the morning, I'm like, I'm ravenous. I'm like, I am ready to eat. And it's like that with God's word. When we eat the word, when we feed upon it, not just reading it, but when it goes into us, we have a greater appetite for it. We don't get full of it. No, we, we actually desire it more. Sometimes it can just be words that are going in our eyes, but it doesn't reach our mind, it doesn't reach our hearts. That's when you begin feeding upon it. You hear what the Lord's saying and how it sustains us, how it helps us. There's no substitute for God's word. And you can fill your stomach with a whole bunch of healthy and unhealthy options, right? You think about food. There's things that your body does not like do not agree with you, you might be allergic to, you could choose to eat those things. There's going to be consequences for it. And there's things that we can take into the windows of our mind and through our eyes that are not good for you. It's not good for you to see. It's not good for you to be thinking about. Your your body's not going to, your spirit's not going to agree with them. So we need to decide, hey, that's not good for me. And we can be more sensitive to what our bodies don't agree with then what wounds our own soul? When we see something and we're like, you know what? When I saw that, it hurt me inside. My body is fine, but it did something in my heart and it, it was horrible. And Lord, heal me, help me. We need him. Verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be no, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. This guy is amazing. So during this season where Paul is living next door to the synagogue, things escalated to the point where they dragged him over before the proconsul. And he's accused of advocating insurrection. Like this guy, he's, he's, um, persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. He's a lawbreaker. And I love it. It says Paul's about to open his mouth to say something. He had been speaking for the Lord a, a lot. Now he's going to speak for himself. It's like the Lord doesn't let him. He uses this indifferent ruler, Gallio, to be his advocate and unlikely help. And he saw through the scheme of the Jews. He says, I'm not going to be involved with your religious squabbling, arguments over names or places, things that have, I have no interest in that. And it, he drove them from the site. And for the trouble of Sosthenes, the chief of the synagogue, they, they beat him for it. And he's like, get out of here. You've got no, just take your problems elsewhere. And I believe this account's been preserved as evidence of God actually keeping his promise to Paul. Right? They've been threatening him. They had been saying things that made him afraid. And God's like, don't be afraid. You keep speaking. He kept speaking. They brought him before the ruler. They say, this guy's teaching us uh, against the law. And the Lord used Gallio to defend him to vindicate him. Paul wasn't beaten. You'd think someone so indifferent and hating of the Jews, everyone gets a beating, right? This is, You guys have wasted my time. Everyone gets a beat down. You all learn your lesson. Go on your merry way. Paul's not touched, but Sosthenes is the chief of the synagogue. Now, going back, this is really interesting. Remember in verse 8, it said Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Well, after he believed in all his house, it's very likely that he resigned shortly thereafter or he was removed from his position. And Sosthenes was the new ruler. Now, it's incredible that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, this Sosthenes is the one that Paul was likely referring to in that letter when he said, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Wow. God can do amazing things. Impossible things. He can take things that people who are opposed to the kingdom of God and make them his advocates. He can take someone who's completely indifferent to the things of God and use them to defend his own people. Nothing is hard for God. And if he's with us, who can be against us? Great opponents of the gospel have become strong advocates. Look at Paul. And the scripture's full of times where things that were bad or negative or difficult turned out to be for the good of the gospel and God's people. When Paul was later incarcerated, he says, hey, me being incarcerated, these chains have actually uh, helped the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel's being sent out in greater 
uh, degree than it was when I was free. So they took great comfort in that, hearing that, wow, you would think that that would bring it into a ministry, but no, it only helped the ministry. When Ezra was rebuilding the temple, and I love this one, Cyrus commands them to rebuild the temple. The Jews return, they start, well, the, the people in the area, they're completely opposed to this idea, and they play the political card, and they send threatening letters back to the king and say, hey, this is a trub, this is a troubling place, and, and these people, they're gonna, they're not gonna pay their taxes, they're gonna cause problems, and the king's like, okay, hold the project. Well, later, when Darius looked into it, he found out that not only had they been commanded to start the work on the temple, but they were supposed, it was on the king's tab, the king was supposed to pay for everything. And so he wrote to those people who had been opposing the work, and they said, you guys are going to give them everything they need. You're even going to give them food for the priests and sacrifices. You're going to pay for everything. So they tried to stop the work, and they had to finance the work and pay for the people's food and their sacrifices as well. It's like, wow. See, God can do these reversals that we couldn't see coming. The greatest example is Jesus on the cross, Satan's scheme to kill the Son of God. He succeeded in doing so, but in doing that, he opened a way for salvation and forgiveness to be offered to every person who repents and trusts in Christ, that we could be freed from the penalty of sin and we can go to heaven and be with God forever as his children. Amazing. What a reversal. What power God has to take these insurmountable impossibilities and make them the way that he accomplishes his work. Verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Paul remained a while in Corinth after the Gallio beating incident with Sosthenes. Then he sailed for Syria with his fellow believers and tent makers Priscilla and Aquila. And at Centria, Paul made a Nazarite vow. This is spoken of in Numbers chapter 6 which involved letting your hair grow for a, a period of time, which could be, you, according to the Mishnah, it's about 30 days. It could be shorter. It could be longer. There are some Nazarites, we read in Scripture, that it was a lifetime, like uh, Samson, for instance, or uh, John the Baptist. And at the end of the if if during that period you were somehow defiled, by eating grapes or drinking wine or touching a corpse or you drank vinegar, then you would have to cut off your hair and start over. At the end of the period, once you had fulfilled your vow, then you would offer a burnt offering, peace offering, grain and drink offering, shave your head, and then the the hair would be burnt as part of it. So it's a very interesting thing in the law. Why Paul took this vow, we do not know. We do not know why it was, but we know it's not a return to the law. I have no doubt that Paul was led by the Spirit to take this vow, and he honored God through the observance of this Old Testament provision. 
because men or women could take this vow. Obedience to God is costly, as, we've, as I've spoken. It can be measured financially. Sometimes it could be depriving yourself of something, as he does here. There's youth from our fellowship that have participated in the World Vision 40-hour famine. It's like a vow to raise funds for an awareness for starving people. And a good question to ask, when we fast from something, what are we replacing it with? So let's say you choose to fast from social media or internet. Well, instead of using the social media, are you seeking the Lord? So it's not so much what you cease doing, but what are you doing instead? What's your aim? Are you seeking the Lord? To restrict ourselves is only part of the equation. And we can think about this in terms of of ceasing from sin as well, not just replacing it with something else, but um, something that's honoring to God. Paul and his companions, they go to Ephesus, a place where two years prior, the Holy Spirit had said, no, you're not going there. So he actually got to go. He enters the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews. And at a point, he left Aquila and Priscilla. He's determined to keep the feast in Jerusalem. Again, no force from the law here. It's cool that Paul and uh, Aquila, both Jews, Paul was compelled. He says, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem to keep the feast. Aquila's a Jew, he is not under the same conviction, so he he stays behind in Ephesus. Paul was no more spiritual because he went, Aquila no less accepted of God because he stayed, but as led by the Spirit, they were obedient to the Lord and God blessed. Acts 18, verse 22, And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandra, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. After Paul arrived at Caesarea and met with the church there, he continued to Jerusalem and then to Antioch where his trip began. And thus, the second missionary trip of Paul is ended. If you hold a Bible in your hand, I want you to turn to the back of it. Not everyone's Bible will. The last couple weeks, I've shown you up on the screen, kind of outlining Paul's missionary journey. I am going to just go out on a limb and say that the back pages of your Bible are rarely used. You probably don't look at these maps very often, but most Bibles, like the church Bible, there is a map of Paul's missionary journey. So instead of just spoon-feeding you a slide, I want to just, just look and see if it's in your Bible. Did you find it? Oh, okay, so it's there. So you can, you can look this up on your own time. But you see there, second missionary journey, we started in Athens and then to Corinth, went over to Ephesus, all the way down to Caesarea, Jerusalem, now up to Antioch. And then his third missionary journey follows the basic pattern of the beginning of his second, where he went in order, following uh, and going to the each, each church. 
So if, and, and no planes, no trains, just boots and boats. That's, that's how far he went. It took a while. <laughs> that's a big commitment. So I wanted to draw your attention to that so you can kind of follow along, know where that is in your Bibles. And it's really cool. Um, I have this great DVD. It's called the Book of, Mo- Bi- the Book of Mormon and the Bible. And it says, is the Book of Mormon comparable to the Bible? And one thing that they talk about is the Book of Mormon has no setting in the world. And that's why there's no maps in the Book of Mormon, because they can't quite figure out where it could possibly fit in the real world in which we live. But the scripture, like all these places where Paul went are real places, and you can go there today. So it's confirmed that it is the, it's true. It matches up with history, and with what we see in the world. Praise the Lord for that. So Paul begins his third missionary journey. He visited each place in order. He strengthened the disciples. We see him putting into practice what he later wrote in his letter to Ephesus, that each part of the body effectively doing its part, doing its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Paul loved the people. He prayed with the people. He prayed for them. He visited with them. He took time going place by place. He didn't skip a place at all. He went church to church, strengthening the disciples. And that's how they were strengthened, was through love. He taught the word of God. He encouraged them. He exhorted them. He wasn't just content to make converts. He wanted to make disciples. And we see him following up, going back and speaking to these folks and strengthening them in the Lord. Verse 24, it switches the setting back to Ephesus where Aquila and Priscilla stayed behind. And there was a Jew that came named Apollos from Alexandria, Egypt. One of the great cities of the ancient world, capital city founded by Alexander the Great, known for scholarship and science. Apollos is described here as an eloquent man. He was well-spoken, mighty in the scriptures. So he's polished. He has great recall of the scriptures a vast knowledge. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And in the synagogue, he was passionate with his presentation. He he commanded people's attention. And the things he taught, the scriptures say, he did so accurately, but his understanding was incomplete. He, He was ignorant of some things, important things. He was preaching repentance and faith in Jesus, but he didn't comprehend the full meaning of Christ's death, resurrection, how baptism goes beyond repentance and how it identifies a believer with Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. It's also likely that he lacked an understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, if you were sitting in and hearing this message and you're waiting for the punchline, have you ever, you know, you know kind of where this is going and you're like right on, when you hear it, you're like, yeah, that that was good. He really hit the the spot. She really made the point. But sometimes that's missing. You get right up to the punchline and it never happens. There's no application. There's no clear, it becomes ambiguous and you're kind of, ah, why didn't we speak about Jesus? Why? Where was that? This would have been a great scripture to bring up and uh, it just never seems to come. So as they're listening to Apollos and he's giving this presentation and they're like, right on, resurrection, you know, repentance, but what about the work of the Spirit? 
What about regeneration? There were things missing. How do you feel when you're, you have that situation and you're like, come on, man. Verse 26, we'll see what they did. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Aquila and Priscilla handled the situation with such grace. They didn't interrupt the meeting. They didn't start arguing with him. They didn't try to humiliate him, exposing his ignorance in front of everyone. But after hearing his message, so they pulled him aside privately and they explained it to him more accurately. He wasn't wrong. The things he said weren't heretical. He was just missing some really key points that he, he was unaware of. He only knew the baptism of John, not baptism with the Holy Spirit. Not, and I love how well it's, it's put here explained to him the way of God more accurately. The focus is not on his failure, how wrong he had been, or the things he he left out, but they came alongside to make him more accurate. It was a teachable moment rather than a a judgment or censure. They sought to, to, hey, he's a preacher. Let's make him a more accurate preacher. Let's give him more understanding of things he hasn't been exposed to. They were able to separate the good man from the incomplete doctrine. And sometimes we struggle to do that. Someone doesn't preach the whole message and we get fired up about it and we just write someone off. But they didn't write him off. They came alongside him and and it speaks to his humility that he received it. They say, well, I know what I'm talking about. I've I've been instructed in the way of scriptures. That's not what they taught me in seminary. No, he received it and he went on to be greatly used by the Lord. At our house, we have a printer, an Epson printer that occasionally needs adjustment. You know, the the ink runs out. If you let it run out all the way and you try to print something, it's going to be pretty dodgy. Only half of the words are there. Lines through everything. And it's a fine printer. Sometimes it needs to be cleaned and adjusted. Still a perfectly good printer when it has ink in it. And we need that adjustment sometimes too. I need that adjustment. The Lord's able to adjust me, and sometimes I need you guys to adjust me. And it goes both ways. We need the Lord to adjust us and to... um, And you know that cleaning process? I have to do it time and time again. If you ever get to that point, it's like clean the head, realign the head. Do it again. It's still bad. Do it again. Still bad. Not perfect. Keep going. Keep getting more and more aligned so that it's clear. So may the Lord align all of us to be uh, fitting with his will. Instead of avoiding people or slandering them because they, they're missing something, their inaccurate view or perhaps their point of emphasis, let's love people. Let's have a discussion with them. The time came when Apollos planned to leave Ephesus for Achaia, Aquila and Priscilla, including with the brethren. They wrote a letter of recommendation for him. Isn't that cool? This guy who was once ignorant, they're now backing him and saying, he's right on, receive this guy. And it says he greatly helped the believers through grace. Grace had been shown him, 
and now he's helping others through grace. He's extending grace. As we have received grace from the Lord, let's extend it to others. Who would have thought a man from Alexandria with inaccurate views could grow to be so useful in Ephesus and Achaia for the kingdom of God, encouraging and strengthening the body? And it's very easy for us to look back upon that one message or that, that, uh, that statement and kind of color our entire view of someone rather than extending grace to them and seeking to join together in fellowship. God's able to use, we just looked through this passage, displaced foreigners, seasons of manual labor, bad neighbors, indifferent politicians, vows, even ignorant preachers to accomplish his will. God is so awesome. I want to point out one thing here. Notice that Paul nor Apollos reasoned that Jesus was the Christ. It's always is the Christ. He reasoned Jesus is the Christ. And he could reason that way because Jesus is alive. He's not someone in the past. No, he's in the present. He is living today. And they had a relationship with him. They could seek him. They could converse with him. They heard him speak as they read the word, as they ministered to him in prayer. Jesus is Christ. He is Messiah. He is Savior. When you have the tough neighbor, when you have the difficult circumstances, when there's threats and intimidation around you, Jesus is the Christ. He wasn't just a Savior for the Jews. He's a Savior for all people who repent and who trust in him. He's a living, almighty God. Let's not forget that. The Lord has found us. Will we keep seeking him? We keep trusting him. He stands even at the door of a lukewarm heart and he knocks and he calls our name and he says, open up so that we can spend some time together. It's always time to practice what Hosea 10.12 says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Praise the Lord that he wants to be sought. He shows himself through the lattice and he says, come away, my love, come away. Let's go to him. Let's seek him now and forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are accessible to us, that you have you have seen us in our desperate, sinful state, and you have come to us, sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world, delivering us from our sins, making us new through the gospel, and giving us new life. I pray, Lord, that we would take to heart the things we've read, that we would realize that you have many people in this city, and when everything seems against us, the politicians, the world, the neighbors, uh, our own faults, our own ignorance, Lord, there's so much that seems to hinder but in those things, you are sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for us. Your strength is made perfect in weakness. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement you bring to hearts that trust you. Thank you for the promises that we can rely upon and know that you have spoken, that it's not flesh and blood that have revealed this to us, but the Holy Spirit, the God Almighty, has spoken, and your word will stand. Lord, we love you and we rejoice to know you and to seek you and to 
to be your willing ministers, even as Paul was, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos. Lord, all the brethren, may we join with them to praise, to worship, and honor you, for you are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.